um, when we hear very complicated uh, language words like sunyata, uh, we kind of think that it means something really high and philosophical and really difficult to understand. But um, another way of, of, of looking at it is, is that there's just not much to it. That's the whole point. But there's there's really nothing there. And that um, what happens when we discuss words like uh, sunyata or sunyata uh, in a, a philosophical context, basically what that philosophical context actually means is conceptualization or making concepts out of uh, the reality of the situation. And that what the Buddha and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa were kind of getting to is, is that reality as, uh, let us say, uh, as manifestly numerous as it is, and because of that, uh, uh, let us say, the underlying principle of cause and effect happens very fast, much faster than not only that humans can catch, but faster than any instrumentation that could ever be designed to catch. In other words, we're trying to capture something that is gone. Let, let us think about a rabbit trap. You know, you got a box here and you got a stick. Right. And it, you have to wait until the rabbit gets under the box before you pull the stick. Okay. Well, the rabbit that we're talking about in the sense of cause and effect goes in and out of that box long before an observer could ever observe that the rabbit was in the box and then out. And if he could observe it, he still couldn't pull the string and get the string to be pulled to move that stick out of the way for the box to fall. All of that is so slow is around um, cause and effect. Uh, and so that's one sort of very slow kind of um, concept to describe it. Here's another concept. What is the speed of light? In fact, this is where the physicists are going with it. What is the speed of light? Why does it have a speed? And what is it that's the causality that determines the speed? Because we know what determines the slowing down of it. We know that in absolute vacuum that it's at one, but it comes down just a bit in outer space because it's not in vacuum. When it goes into an atmosphere, it's slower. When it goes into water, it's even slower. When it gets onto circuit boards in a computer, it's even slower than that, or the electrons are much slower. They're around 180, excuse me, about 130 thousand uh, uh, miles per second as opposed to 186,000. So we're talking about then the reality is, is that there are factors that determine the speed of light. What are the final factors that determine the speed of light is causality itself. Or you can think of light as in a light wave. 
Now, that's easy to understand ocean waves and gravity and all of that kind of stuff. But if a light wave is going up, why, why does it come back down? What causes it to lose its altitude, if not its uh, energy, so that it goes down into the trough and then back up again? What are the causalities of these things? This is the part that we don't know, but we do know that at one, it happens fast. Way faster than a trillionth of a second way faster than a nanosecond, because we can measure things at the nanosecond level, and this stuff is like a nanosecond's nanosecond. <laughs> and not only that, but it's happening, so much of it is happening, it is actually affecting every molecule and everything in the universe, all simultaneously. And so at that conceptual level, it's both very fast and very, very, very common, if we could say. <laughs> Where literally, since we've been talking in this conversation, within your own body, literally trillions of things have happened trillions of times. And yet, what is happening is very basic. Mm. Right. Very, very basic. It's just happening very commonly and a whole lot of it. So, now that we've got that, that this is reality. Reality is very simple. There's just a whole lot of it. <laughs> yeah, the like, right. I'm, I'm just sitting here right now, but trillions of things are happening in order for me to be sitting here right now. Right. In order to even have the concept, I am sitting yeah. here. <laughs> Now, <laughs> all of those are concepts. <laughs> okay. Okay, so um, we think in concepts, but we experience through the senses reality directly. But the stories that we tell ourselves are conceptualizations. In the Pali, this would be called the Salayatana. The atana is the senses, and the salayatana is what we do with it. So as you've noticed, I have jumped immediately out of, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, let us say, particle physics into Petitya Samupada. Both of them are sophisticated. <laughs> okay, the salayatana is the atana that we use on the inside. So another way of saying it is no human being is capable of living in the real world. They live in a conceptualized world. And the reason for that is, is because we're trying to make sense out of it. And the way that we make sense out of it is through our past. In other words, if I see a tree, I recognize it's a tree because I've seen trees before. Then they're done that. <laughs> Okay, so now that we've been there, done that, we can do it again really quickly. And that process of doing it again happens in the mind so fast that we're generally not aware of it, and so that we mistake the reality with what we've done with it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I see that, like, that there is a, a conceptualization or what we're actually interacting with is a mental construction. Mm -hmm. yeah, or the actually, 
what uh, uh, the way that it's spoken of in uh, the Pali is, is that which contacts us hmm. is not the sense itself, but it's what we manufacture out of that sense. In other words, you could be standing in a in a fairly crowded place where there's a lot of busy activity and somebody brush aside uh, you. And on one particular day, you'd react to it differently than you reacted to it on a different day. On one day, you'd say, hey, watch where you're going. And on the other day, it doesn't matter at all. Okay. But the brush was exactly the same. But what we did with it is what is uh, really going on. And so the Buddha and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa are pointing out that the brush itself was void of both the ignoring of it and the ignoring of it and the hey, watch where you're going side. Both of those are mental constructs and the reality was actually void of that. Yeah. I can see that there's a lot of freedom in that. And it happens on a, uh, let us say it happens on a very frequent basis. And that we're generally not aware of it. Um, here's another example of that is, is that somebody is walking down the street with a particular kind of clothing on and two people across the street are looking at him and each of them have a completely different reaction to him and neither one of them know him. All they do is recognize the suit or the uniform he's wearing. And yet they will have a completely different reaction to him. For instance, or her, for, for instance, it may be a nun's habit. The two people will have a completely different reaction to the person that's wearing the nun's habit. Or it may be an SS uniform. Or it may be a uh, Halloween version of an SS uniform. And one of you can see the Halloween version of it, and the other one sees it as real. It depends upon how we mentally construct things and the way that we mentally construct things often has more to do with our own baggage, our own past. Okay, then it does the actual reality. The reality is void. In fact, the reality is, is that that's not an SS uniform, Halloween or otherwise. It's just cloth cut in a certain style at a certain color and that we identify it as SS uniform, also a mental construction. So there's right. layers of mental construction. Yeah, it's it's not objective. It's yeah, it's subjective. It's subjective. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh huh. And that uh, is very good for us humans to begin to see more and more clearly that the subjective world we live in is often dangerous because it's subjective. In the sense that the closer we actually live to reality, then the less likely we are to have dukkha or dissatisfaction. In other words, when we're satisfied with reality, but when we make a concept out of it, it's the concept 
especially if the concept is very, very far away from reality. Okay, the reality is, is just a girl with makeup. The concept is that she is a drop dead gorgeous babe. And one guy will turn and run because he's afraid of rejections and other things. So the other guy's going to run right towards her. But neither one of them see the girl herself. Mm. All they see is what they have mentally constructed out of her. Hmm. So where does sunyata fit in? Well, the sunyata is look at what's not there. And we can get started with that at a very, very simple level. The way that the Buddha taught Ananda about this was going into a sala. Now, salas are common here. Basically, what a sala is, is a a roof that's somehow supported with as few poles as possible. And that's all you've got. That's a sala. It may or may not have a floor. The floor may or may not be concrete or dirt or wood or whatever like that. But a sala is no walls. Just the top. So the Buddha walks into this fairly large uh, um, sala and pointed out to Ananda that this sala is empty of monks. It is empty of bowls. It is empty of clatter. It is empty of clutter. Now, uh, uh, at mealtime, it's not empty of those things. But at this particular time, the sala is empty. Another example in the time of the Buddha was going to the forest, and the forest now is empty of a village. No village there. Except that humans don't understand that, and so when they go to the forest, they take the village with them, and there the village is. He's standing there. He just arrived. He walked in, thinking that he was going to get away from the village, and he brought it with him. But not the real village, only a conceptualization village, the village of concepts. So thinking about it or pondering. Thinking about it, precisely. So when Ananda is standing in the empty sala, he is conceptualizing monks and bowls there, but he's also conceptualizing it with the knowledge that this is the conceptualization, that there are, in fact, no bowls or monks here. Now, that's easy enough to do in that example, but village is pretty hard. Because we live a whole lot in the environment that we're in, and so we kind of take our environment with us. So if we lived in the village and then went to the forest, we've got a whole lot of village kind of thinking going on. But we don't know it. We're not in the here now. We're in a conceptualized world. And the world itself is free and empty of those concepts. The only place they exist is between the ears. 
Okay. <clears throat> now let's get to the one that's kind of bothersome, and that is what is the meaning of life? This is a concept. Life itself is free of meaning. It doesn't mean anything, it just is. Which means that we now have, which means is, is that we have the means to uh, give it meaning. Sorry for my playing with words there. I like that kind of stuff. <laughs> so we we make the meaning in a sense. Right. We mean the meaning. We mean the meaning. And we mean to do it that way. But then we forget that we've meaned it into existence, and otherwise it's got no meaning. Yeah, I suppose we spend a lot of time looking for a meaning or mm -hmm. for some meaning out there. Yeah. And people go around with a lot of, well, what's the purpose of life? Mm -hmm. What's the meaning? Uh, with questions like, is that all there is? Disappointed, in fact. Uh, that there's not some magic meaning up there that's trying to give you meaning. But you're doing that yourself. And every human being does it themselves. Yeah, I feel that. That's that's potentially very heavy. Um, or very light. I mean, the heaviness was light. that we thought that, that was true. We believed the concepts, and the concepts are very heavy. Right. So the con the concepts are heavy. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been carrying around those very heavy concepts, the meaning of life, the purpose of life. Um, what's it all about, Alfie? Is that all there is? Actually, there's a lot of music written about that because after a pop star becomes a pop star, that's what the question is. After I've had all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that I can stand, what's it all about? And they wake up in either overdoses or uh, dead from suicide or stupidity or something like that because they continue to look for the meaning that they thought that they were finding when they got popular. And then they recognize that the popularity is actually a weight, not a freedom. Right. Like, you know, you could have all the money in the world, but then you have to figure out where where to put it all or then you're going to have to figure out not only where to put it but to make sure that that place is free from the seven billion people that are after it they want their money back <laughs> the only escape is space i suppose <laughs> yeah so having all the money in the world is a really really dangerous thing Certainly trying right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we recognize that, then we begin to look at it in the other direction is, is that well, what's the, the smallest amount of this delusional world can I get away with? 
This is where we come into the issue of the four requisites. Just enough food, just enough shelter, just enough clothing, just enough medical attention. That's all we have to work for. And yet our society teaches us through these concepts, the bigger, the better. You've got to have your name on the top of the tower. Right. Uh, at one time, the joke was they called it an edifice complex. Hmm. But that that was a joke on the Oedipal complex, Oedipus Rex. Right, right, right. Okay, who falls in love with his mommy uh, and goes into competition with his daddy. Yeah, stabs his eyes. But that's actually uh, the softer version of it that I just said is the life of the Western young man is to rebel against his father only to recognize later, perhaps at the age of 40, that he has completely become his father. That seems to be the pattern that plays itself out, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the Oedipal complex. So the, uh, the Oedipus complex then is a place to store all of that Oedipal complex. I beat you, Daddy. See, my building is bigger than yours. Right. Just another form of competition. Precisely. Rather than having the concept of just enough, a little dabble to you. A hut that we could build in a week may last for years and years and years. Or we could spend years and years and years building a palace, which we may not be able to stay in very long. Yeah, and gotten old by the time it was done. <laughs> or, or maintaining it and sweeping it and keeping it right, clean. Right, exactly. Now you got a lot of work to take care of. Got to have employees. How are you going to pay for them? So, going in that direction, then, that all of these conceptual things are actually void or empty. And there's another way of looking at it, and this is the way that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is approaching the word void itself, uh, is looking at the way that we think. Now, a lot of people will look at void mind and say, oh, void means no thoughts at all. Well, no, there's many different kinds of thoughts, and one kind of thought is conceptualizations. And part of that conceptualization would be the kind of thoughts that would be we call critical or comparative or judgmental thoughts. All of them kind of things together. This is good. This is better. That's best. I like this. I don't like that. And we all and we go around making these judgments, these quality judgments, ignorant. We don't know that we're making them where the reality of the situation doesn't have these judgments on it. That's something that we're doing in our head. We're conceptualizing that this is good and conceptualizing that that's bad, perhaps even without a proper investigation, we come to such a conclusion. That's the ignorance, is not doing an investigation to see if the concept that we've created has any match with actual reality. Right. So it's it's not good or bad. It just is the way it is. 
it's just is the way that it is. And the closer we see things is the way that they actually are, then the less likely we're going to have dukkha. That in fact, the uh, uh, the isness of reality is then being manipulated or twisted or conceptualized in the mind of this part of reality is good, that part I don't like, I like this, I don't like that. And so we're back and forth in this uh, rather um, restless liking and not liking cycle that's based upon judgments. Yeah, it sounds like... Um... The push-pull of, uh, of Vedana, where if there's something pleasant, you're, you're, you're grasping after it. If there's something unpleasant, you're pushing away. And Ah, yes. And the reason that we are pushed and pulled through Vedana is because something contacted us. This is the pasa, pasa before the Vedana. What is immediately before the ve- uh, the pasa, that which contacted us into make, having a feeling, I like it, I don't like it, is the salayatana or the conceptualization of the reality. So we have reality, we bring it in, we try to make sense out of it, we bring in our past to do so, and we do what we call cognition or perception. Perception or perception actually means to do it in order to see it. We conceive or we perceive things. And how we do that is because we take images and thoughts and feelings and concepts from the past to add to the present data that we've just arrived at in the past tenth of a second in order to make something understandable out of it that we're very curious human beings and we go around trying to make uh uh uh, everything that we know understandable and known humans are knowledge freaks dogs are not so much knowledge freaks they're more of chow hounds (laughs) yeah yeah i i've definitely noticed that that uh that there's that that process taking place of cobbling together an opinion about something based on past data, based on memories, past experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what we make out of all of that is now a new kind of consciousness. We can actually say that there's two kinds of consciousness. And when I'm saying that, I'm also meaning that even in the Pali, Vinaya has two different um, definitions to it, as most languages, most words in most languages have multiple definitions. And so one kind of consciousness is called sense consciousness. And we can use words like seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, observing, okay? But then we can use that word, that verb seeing in a different way. I see what you mean. Hmm. Oh, see, the time is getting away. No, the time's not getting away. But when we say that, that that's a conceptualization that I've got to go. Right. Okay. Yeah. See, in, in that first case is like, I understand or... Uh... 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one is I observe, and the other one is I cognize. So these are two kinds of uh, of consciousness, and it's that second kind of consciousness, that which is all wrapped up in a birthday uh, uh, package tied with a bow. That's what is presented as a present to the Vedana. How do you like this? You like it or not? Not recognizing that maybe what the Vedana is going to pick on is not what's actually in the present moment, but what's we've uh, added to it with the past with our buttons and bows. Right. So we're we're not getting a clear picture. We're getting a muddied picture based on everything that we add to the present, so to speak. Exactly. And when we understand that, then we can say, wait a minute, that means that we need to keep looking, keep observing, keep watching, keep noticing and stop coming to so many conceptualized conclusions. Hmm. Now, I have basically stated uh, a, a paragraph out of a sutta. Which is noble right view. One's noble right view is based in wisdom, is based in uh, uh, investigation. It's the uh, investigation enlightenment state is looking at what's going on and it's continuing to observe. That is one's right noble view. Which in a way means that it's now being more and more freed up from the conceptualizations. That conceptualizations are in ordinary right view. Hmm. Right, so it's it's peeling back the layers in a sense and looking, contacting, staying with, in a sense. Well, staying with the senses as opposed to all the Mm -hmm. data that's, that's added on top. Which is actually, in general, a lot of prejudice goes into the concoction of the uh, present that is going to be given to the feeling system. It's already loaded. So this is something that we have to begin to understand how the mind works. And it we do so with uh, a tool that also has a whole lot to do with this quality of void mind that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was talking about. So getting back to the point that it's not that we're going to have the mind completely thoughtless, but rather we're going to have correct and appropriate thoughts that deal with things the way they actually are rather than adding a bunch of stuff that would then try to fill the void. So the void mind actually is a wholesome mind that thinks, feels, and acts according to the reality of the situation, as opposed to reacting to a situation the way that we reacted to it, say, when we were five years old or six years old. Because that's where all of that foundation was laid. When we were little kids, we reacted to things. 
and there's a almost uniform reaction that first graders have to school. Yeah, I'm, I'm a teacher, so I'm very familiar with how <laughs> they react to, to school. How do they react then? Um, Would you say they generally don't like it? They are generally reluctant to be told to come into this room and sit down in this chair and do what you're told to do. Yeah, I, th I think at first, if you have, you know, if you're used to something else and it's so different and than what you're used to at home, then. Mm -hmm. um, but some kids have a lot of that at home before they get to school. Hmm. And so there for you are easier to deal with, but the child himself has already been, uh, let us say, put in a situation, basically what I'm talking about is is that our our nesting instinct of being at home and associating with others has the quality of going along to get along do what you're told to do fitting into the crowd that the child does not like to be isolated one of the major punishments that we have as adults is to isolate the child why because that goes against the then that uh uh, the instinct, the nesting instinct. And generally, the reason why we isolate a child is because he won't behave socially the way we want to. And so that whole system gets going in childhood, and now we bring that whole system into adulthood. And it winds up being something like having a conversation inside the mind between the parent ego state or the temporal lobe and the um, anterior cortex of the brain, which is sometimes referred to as a reptilian brain. Eric Byrne calls that the child ego state. And that in young kids, the, uh, the, the, the frontal cortex is not fully formed yet, even. The bones haven't grown together. All kinds of things are happening in there that are we would call developmental psychology. So uh, but when we're adults, we wind up having this dialogue between the parent and the child about all the ways that society should operate. You should do this. You should go on a diet. You should meditate. I don't want to meditate. Here I am watching YouTube, and instead of watching the YouTube, I'm having a dialogue inside. You should go meditate. I don't want to go meditate. Meditation is going to be good for you. Okay. And we have have this dialogue going on and it's all a construction and while we're having this dialogue we're not watching the video we're not in our senses we're not paying attention to what's going on we're having an internal dialogue instead and so we need to wake up to these internal dialogues and put a stop to them and start having the kind of language then from this parent that would be nurturing and soothing and more to the reality of the situation. An example is, is that in the room that you're in right there, there are no dangers. There's no alligators, there's no crocodiles, there's no uh, uh, mafia bosses busting down the door, there's not a SWAT team, there is no mommy, there is no teachers, and yet we bring all of that stuff into the mind. And then we feel danger. 
But the reality is things are not dangerous. And so with wisdom, we can begin to have the kind of thoughts that things are not dangerous. We can have thoughts like there is no place to go and nothing to do. Everything is just fine right now. Hmm. The spring will come and the grass will grow by itself. And so we begin to have very wholesome kind of thoughts, which are nurturing, as opposed to having critical thoughts, which are conceptualizations about how things ought to be. And we start living in a life or in a world of how things actually are. And guess what? The way things actually are is quite nice, sweet. Wow. I think the way that you just phrased it made me think that it's much more a process of noticing uh, how pleasant things are right now, as opposed to like what could potentially be more neurotic like oh, everything's all right everything's fine when it's not because you're still in the conceptualization but like mm -hmm. that everything's all right everything's fine nothing to do nowhere to go is like noticing how things are in this present moment as opposed to <laughs> like i don't know some something that you tell yourself as like a i don't know a comfort or or, or something in that direction. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. So this is where we're getting to with the sunyata. Then is, is that our sala is actually empty. There's not a bunch of monks with their robes and their bowls and their clatter and their food and all of that kind of stuff happening inside the mind are not there. Or the reality, this is just a little forest here. Just an empty hut. There is no village here. There are no bosses. There are no priests. There are no cops. There's nothing. This is the fact that right now things are void of all of the things that could be there, but are not. So then the uh, avoid mind is actually paying attention to what's not there. Right. In a very wholesome way. So that in fact, the void mind is, is much more paying attention to what really is there and noting when things come up that are not really there. You say, nope, that's not here. Right, that's not here right now. This here now is void of that. Not here. I like that one. <laughs> uh, so the mind, then, when we first sit down to meditate or when the practice comes on, we begin to watch this conceptualization because we've gotten quite into the habit of doing it a lot. <laughs> and uh, we're actually now practicing to get things off of our mind, the things that are on the mind, but are not in the present moment, are not here. They're, the only place that that stuff exists is in the mind. And so uh, practicing correctly means to get that, get that stuff out of the mind 
so that the mind can deal with the reality of the moment. And the mind then can be considered void, not because it's void of thoughts, but that the kind of thoughts that it's void of is the kind of stuff that's not here. Now, know that in a, in a way we're talking about double negatives, but the Buddhist whole show, the entire teaching of the Buddha is based upon the negative. It's not on the positive. It really is all about not giving the skate the uh, the lion a crutch, or not giving the lion skates, or not putting a parachute on the lion. That all we really need to do is to take the thorn out of the foot of the lion. The lion doesn't need anything other than having something removed. This is the entire teaching of the Buddha. Right. Subtractive process. Precisely. Which means that we have to deal with the negative because what we're going to deal with is that which has got to go. The thorn. Right. So in a way, we could say that Bobby McGee was right. Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. But the only thing we ever had to lose anyway was thorns that were keeping us limp. Hmm. Yeah. Because and so when the foot is void of that thorn, the foot will heal naturally. And then the line is going to be all over the place. He's going to have all the freedom he needs. All he needs is to get rid of that thorn. I guess my question is, what isn't a thorn? Because... <laughs> <laughs> The answer, my friend, is not blowing in the wind. The answer is, is that that's your investigation to go find that answer out. Is this a thorn or is this not a thorn? And that we've got a criteria for that. Is this thorn really happening right now? Or is this a thorn I'm making up in the mind? Right. This is really happening right now. Okay, so we're beginning to look at reality in a completely different way because now, and in fact, you can think about it this way, uh, that all religions basically are big on truth, kind of a capital T, big truth. And that their idea of that big truth is that, see, all of our magical concepts were real after all. You just couldn't see them. Right. Like faith or. or exactly. Exactly. And sort. basically we're going in the opposite direction. That's why the teachings of the Buddha are so radical is because we're saying, no, go do a really deep investigation. And if it's not there, then we can come to the conclusion it's not there. That is much more like a legal court than it is a uh, um, uh, 
let us say a, a jail under the temple or under the uh, cathedral or something. And this is what I mean by that. Um, if you if the prosecutor in a criminal case has evidence, then he will present that evidence and the defense has to either um, mollify that evidence, try to prove that it was not true, come up with an alibi or something like that to refute the evidence. If the prosecutor has no evidence, then the case is going to get thrown out of court. Right? That's that's the way that we deal with things when we're dealing with things logically. If you've got no evidence, then you have no case. But the Christians come by and say, no, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. In other words, you killed, you still just can't see what we can see. But what they're missing is, is that you're not making up the same conceptual ideas that they're making up. Because they can't tell the difference between reality and the conceptions that they're making up. So, absence of evidence is evidence of absence when it's a thorough investigation and comes up with no evidence. Okay, absence and of evidence. So now the only question left is how do you define the word thorough? That's the only question left. Yeah, I mean, you take a look and <laughs> I mean, if it's not there, it's it's not there. Uh, it's not there. Yeah. That you look and you look and you look. This happened just yesterday. Because I didn't want to make a stir. I wanted to make sure that my mind was not broken. I remember exactly where I put the cell phone. I went and wasn't there. I must have put it someplace else. I go and I look all around the computer and everything. I look on the floor. I pull up the mattress. I do everything that I can. And finally, I, I don't know where it is. And so I go to the wife and I say, I don't know. Where, and before I even get it out of the mouth, my cell phone is sitting right beside her. <laughs> she had gotten it. <laughs> but I had to prove that to myself first. There's a self-inquiry uh, piece that is almost identical to that story, and it's looking for the cell phone, and it's like the question, who am I? It's like you look under the mattress or you look under the cushion. Like, is it there? Is, if it's not there. Not there? Not there. So. But we can also see sometimes it arises, and when we, the easiest way to understand self is by using not the word self, because that's loaded in our language. But there is another word that we can use that's very helpful, and that is the word selfishness. And when we're acting selfishly, we do so out of that self. So selfishness is the behavior that can be seen that will trace back to where the self actually exists when it exists. But, but the self like consciousness is dependently arising. That the self is not there all the time, but if we have concepts of self, then that will keep the self triggered and going a lot. 
One, in fact, can play the stock market and be fairly good at it because he's just watching what's going on. And the other guy is frantic because he's playing with his money. Or worse still, his mama's money. And so uh, that selfishness uh, brings on the sense of danger. And then we don't react when we need to react. An example of that is that when a stock starts falling that everybody knows is bad, but the people who hang on to the stock are the ones who were most attached to it. Funny like that. And the ones who don't care, oh, it's going down, we sell that off. I'm, it's not mine. It's just a stock. And so actually, what, what I'm getting at is, is that there are wise people who make a lot of money on the stock market, and they're wise in the sense that they don't get emotionally involved with it. They're doing the job. But the reason that they can make money is because of the 10 uh, times in that number of people, the, the literally hundreds of thousands of people who invested in the stock market selfishly, worried about does it go up or does it go down? And they're not following the wisdom. They're not following the uh, the news. They're following their feelings instead. Mm. And they get ripped off. Another way of talking about it is charlatans. The charlatans already know that they cannot. In fact, this is quite famous. The charlatan knows that he cannot uh, show an honest man. What does that really mean? It means is, is that they have to hook into somebody's greed and get somebody really greedy in order to buy their shtick. That anyone who is wise and listens to what they have to say will say, that's not me, that's not mine. Mm. But when someone has greed, I want, I want, I want then they're the ones who are most likely going to get uh, taken. Mm. Yeah, yeah, big time. In other words, if you don't want anything, then you're unlikely to get ripped off. Just like if you don't want anything, it's unlikely for you to rip somebody off. It works in both directions. Yeah, if you get a scam call offering you some big prize or something if you click the button you go i don't i don't need a cruise or whatever they're offering or... you think people would be wise to that kind of stuff now i think that the majority are but it's that one percent that or fractions of percents when you're calling mm -hmm. it hooks people's greed their mm -hmm. curiosity they want something out of it mm -hmm. and that's that's the scam so um, what we mean now is, is that they were following the reality. If they knew what was real, then we would not be uh, subject to that kind of stuff. So, we, so the closer we are to reality, the less likely we are to suffer. And the further we are from reality, the more likely we are to suffer. And reality ultimately is void. That the, uh, the famous uh, comedian once said, what you see is what you get. 
And what we want then, or what we think we're going to get, is what we can imagine. Rather than looking at what it really is. But what really, what really is, is void of all of the stuff that we would normally add to it as humans with our thinking process. That we, we can imagine all kinds of things that are not real. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking like, I guess one of the things that propels that cycle is like, oh, well, sometimes if I imagine something really great, I do get it. <laughs> so I feel like there's a whole. Yes, but would you have gotten it with or without the conceptualizations? Were they related? In other words, we're asking the question, is synchronicity or serendipity controllable? Or are there just actual coincidences? I don't know, but I think it requires investigation and it. Um, Precisely so. Exactly. Everything like that needs to be investigated. And the, the way that we uh, we start with that is um, even though if you do it from the very beginning, we're going right deep into this concept of void mind with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. So it's actually an easy step. It's almost the distinction between being on hot, dry sand and taking one step into the water. You don't have to travel hot sand for miles and miles to get to the water. That's just one step away or one thought away. But we have to remember to take that step, to remember to come out of the hot, dry sand of conceptualizations into the cool water of reality. And we can make that straight that step immediately. And uh, in one respect, that's one of the fa famous, most famous sayings of the of the Buddha. And he had this when he was putting together uh, the the teaching of Paticca Samapada. When he began to understand how he has mind worked, he came up with a phrase. And that phrase is, aha, I see you, Mara. And what we were talking about is Myra here is that conceptualizing mind, that wanting mind, that mind that's living in a non-reality. Aha, I see you, Myra. I see you, delusional mind. And so the Buddha said that, and by saying that, we've automatically come out of it. That's the stepping into the cool water, is to recognize that this this what's cool that that foot was was in hot sand. This was in cool water. Aha, I can see that my mind was conceptualizing. Yeah, in in noting, in labeling, they like it's it's like the naming the monster aspect. Somebody had a description. I think it may have been Ron Crouch or Kenneth Folk. One of them was talking about naming the dragon and taking away its power in in mythology. Um, 
sometimes I guess if you can name an unwholesome mind state and see it, and then you can come out of it or it takes away the, I guess, like some of the heat or suffering around it. Okay. Actually, you're, you're, um, you're correct in a way, and it's actually correct if it is followed through or goes all the way. This is what we're talking about is, is that the name or naming or in the Pali, the word Nama. And that we actually use that in the sense of with the Vipassana, the Mahasi method of noting, of naming the monster. Now, the point is, is that. Uh, the naming itself. Has some power. But it's not enough power to actually slay the dragon. Merely naming the dragon is not enough to slay the dragon. But it's useful, it's helpful. One way of, of thinking of is, is that at least I know who the enemy is. I've named him. Mm. I can see him. I've identified him. I know he's right in that cave of the mind. I know exactly where he is and I know how to go get him. Okay, so this is what we mean by the naming actually is the quality of knowledge of knowing. And that um, along the way, it becomes the knowledge or the knowing of I can slay this monster. I know this guy. I can handle this Maya. This is actually getting into the quality of uh, the Eightfold Noble Path called Sama Sankapa. Sama Kansapa is um, sometimes translated as right thought, which is kind of correct. It's sometimes translated as right intention, which is not correct. But a better way of translating it is right mental attitude, the attitude underlying those thoughts. What's your frame of thinking when you have a particular kind of thought? This is what we mean by attitude. And that we normally grow up. With the attitude of a victim. The attitude of needing help. Mommy helped us put on our diaper, therefore God's going to help me get into heaven. Or something like that. Right? Why can't I get into heaven myself? It's only a mental state. And it's a concept at that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. So part of the uh, the attitude then is coming out of the attitude of being a, uh, a victim, being a child, having all of these concepts laid upon us. So that we wind up having a set of rules or rituals or an ideal life that we should live. A conceptualized life. And we can recognize that no, we actually don't have to live that victim's role. We can become the champion here. We can have the freedom to live this life and this moment happily and joyfully. And I don't have to jump through any hoops that I've invented in order to uh, to feel like that I can win. I can just feel like and develop the feeling of being a winner. 
Yeah. So this is like the attitude of a lion that you sometimes talk about or. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what we're talking about. The attitude of the lion. And this is, in fact, what I was talking about right back from the very beginning. And this lion is a victim because he's got a little thorn in his paw. And all we have to do is to pull that thorn out of the paw. And now he's a roaring lion again. So the thorn he always the was a lion. He just thought he was a victim. Right. So the thorn is the conceptualizing the victim's attitude. The I need help, um, etc. As opposed to like, I've got this. <laughs> I can do this. I can do this. I can yeah. got that. Right. I know that no matter how I'm structured with concepts my mind gets, I can throw those things out, come back to avoid mine, and be here now. So the that's the attitude. I can do this. I can take care of this situation. I can see what's going on. I don't have to uh, to imagine something terrible is happening when in fact nothing at all is terrible happening. So that going into from the hot sand into the cool water is is coming back to the present moment. Mm -hmm. It's the be here now, as opposed to like the hot desert is the conceptualizing, the getting stuck in the papancha or the proliferation and all the mm -hmm. conceptualizing. Yeah, I see that. I see that. I think if I think back to the last week, just moments where <laughs> I whipped myself into a state or, or was thinking, uh, you know, going down a, a rabbit hole or, uh, or <laughs> um, having unwholesome thoughts in, this, in a sense. When I realized that that's what I was doing, I was able to come out of it going like, and it, it, it seemed funny after the fact, uh, like, mm -hmm. wow, as wild i can't believe i convinced myself in, the, in, the, in this particular instance i convinced myself that i gave myself food poisoning which was not the case and so um well look how many people really do interesting and silly things like convince themselves that they're a republican or convince sure. themselves that they're a democrat yeah 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 mm-hmm and then yeah. they live in a set of concepts. The reaction, the reality is, is that nobody is anything. And so it would be better if we did not identify and, and um, refer to ourselves as that political group or this uh, nationality or anything else. Because every nationality and every political party has ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. And if you identify with that party, when it goes up, you go up. And when it goes down, you go down. But if you don't identify with any of them, then let them go up and down and up and down. And you're avoid of all of that upending and downing. Like when your sports team wins, you're up. When your sports team loses, you're down. Right, because it's not my team, and I recognize that. The not fan right. doesn't, though. He he thinks that it's his team. So when the ten team wins, he feels good. When the team uh, loses, and that's not just at the end of the game. That's the whole throughout the game. Up, down, up, down, up, down. Either up and down and up and down or boredom. 
getting ready for an up and down and up and down. So the thing of it is, though, if he walked into the locker room right at the end of the game with all the other players, they're going to tell him to get out. He doesn't belong. If he then goes upstairs to the owner's box, they're going to tell him to get out. And he says, but this is my team. And they're going to tell him for sure. Oh, no, it's not your team. Oh, no, that was <laughs> that was your concept. <laughs> the reality is, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it feels really pernicious. Like if I think about uh, like latching on to things in that way, in that identity view, it really becomes, I don't know, I feel the danger in that. I, I see that now where I think like, oh yeah, yeah, you, you would just get whipped around um, mm -hmm. by the ups and downs of whatever that you attach to. Yeah, whatever you attach to. So that's the budding den of wisdom. That's the investigation is begin to see when they go up and down. If I go up and down with them, that's Duca. But if they go up and down and I take great joy in watching them up and down without having to join them up and down, then I'm steady state. I'm good. So, sunyata, everything is empty. There's nothing to it. Life <laughs> actually is quite easy when we stop trying to create things and add to the mix. The mix is already good to go. It's already okay like it is. Yeah. Just add an egg or don't add an egg. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so all we have to do then is to just enjoy the moment because it's already finished. It's arrived on time and in perfect condition <laughs> to be enjoyed. And yet look how many times we criticize it instead or ignore it altogether. Because we're too busy <laughs> criticizing something else. <laughs> it's not here now. <laughs> yeah. So, last point then, and that is, is that void mind does not mean uh, completely empty. It just means empty of the things that are not here now. And thoughts about the here now, wow, this is a nice breeze, oh, this is a good breath, everything looks nice right now. Oh, what a beautiful morning, except it's an afternoon now. Nice afternoon, too. Nice breeze. Trees are waving in the breeze. Everything is nice. When you're looking at it from that perspective, everything right now is okay. That means the mind is void because it's void of all the concepts that could send things south. Last point. This whole talk has been about the story of Adam and Eve. You know the story about the apple and the talking snake and the girl did it and that kind of stuff? The fig leaf. 
Yeah, I'm familiar. Right. <laughs> the real teaching of the story of Adam and Eve is, is that they had to put up with the results of their actions, and their actions was knowledge of good and evil. Ta-da! There is that conceptualizing mind. And that conceptualizing mind of this is good, this is bad, I like this, I don't like that. You know, I live in paradise here. This is a really paradise kind of tree beside me, but it's got a yellow leaf, so I think I'll cut it down. I'm going to go cut down all the trees that have yellow leaves in my paradise. What kind of paradise will I have left? Not much. Not much, but I have conceptualized that yellow leaves are bad. And the tree's just fine with that yellow leaf. Mm. So this is how we destroy our paradise. We destroy it by judging it. We destroy it by pulling out one yellow leaf at a time. And while we're pulling out that leaf, we're not enjoying it. We're too busy getting rid of it. Mm. And yellow leaves are marvelous things. They, they are to be enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine the way it is. That's right. We live in a paradise, and here we are, like Adam and Eve, doing our best to destroy the place. We're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you're aware that you do that on your own, inside your own mind, moment by moment, you can uh, make note of it and then put a stop to it. Aha, I see you. And then throw those thoughts out and bring in some more wholesome thoughts. Thoughts that have to do with what's happening right now. Thoughts to gladden the mind. Thoughts that help you appreciate what a marvelous paradise you live in. Yeah, gratitude. Gratitude, precisely. Yeah. All right, Zach. So go practice, add this kind of stuff to your practice, and we'll talk to you later. Will do. Talk soon. Excellent.